Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, don't you just love finding shortcuts and quick fixes to make it uh, easier and quicker to accomplish your goals, especially now that the new year is here. You know, now that the new year has come, chances are um, you've already started to see some of those infomercials and some of those social media ads touting the next best diet or the, the latest piece of fitness equipment that's guaranteed to change your life. And it seems that each year these machines get weirder and weirder and weirder. Uh, I saw this one called a chair gym. It's literally a folding chair that has resistance bands attached to it. I saw another one called an urban rebounder, which is supposed to burn insane amounts of calories. And essentially what that is, is a tiny little trampoline for adults. And then I saw one that was uh, an abdominal muscle uh, training belt, which supposedly shocks your stomach into oblivion, giving you firmer, stronger muscles, all without having to break a sweat. And the thing is that these things sell, as silly as they might sound. They sell. Why? Because most of us want shortcuts. We like shortcuts. It seems that each year we try to make things easier and easier, whether it's to get in shape, whether it's to earn more money, or even if it's to improve yourself somehow. We want shortcuts. We want quick fixes. We want a quick fix for a failed marriage or an addiction. We want a quick fix for a poor job performance or a bad attitude. We want to win the lottery so that our financial worries will all be gone. But what happens when we try to find shortcuts when it comes to our spiritual journey? What happens when we try shortcutting the times of hardship that enter into our lives? What happens when we impatiently speed up our plans because God just doesn't seem to be moving fast enough on his plans for us? What happens when we mistake the voice of God for another voice because the other voice was telling us exactly what we wanted to hear and God seems to be silent lately? See, if you're anything like me, maybe you too wish that there was a one-size-fits-all quick fix for every dilemma and every delay in your spiritual journey. Wouldn't that be nice? See, we wouldn't be the only ones to think so. Because in our passage today, we'll see what happens when Abram and Sarai try to shortcut uh, God's promises to them and they take God's plans into their own hands. What we'll learn today from Genesis chapter 16 is that trying to take God's plans into our hands always makes a mess. 
Trying to take God's plans into our own hands always makes a mess. The reality is that there are no shortcuts when it comes to living out a life of faith and dependence on God. Trying to take God's plans into our own hands always makes a mess. So today we're picking up on our study of the life of Abraham with a new series that we're calling Refined by Fire. This is the second part of the life of Abraham. So let's recall for a moment where we've been, what we've studied so far. In Genesis 12, we saw God choosing an unsuspecting 75-year-old man who he would bless and through whom he would bring blessings to people of the earth everywhere. God promises Abram that he'll have offspring as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth. And, And he promises to make Abram into a great nation. The problem, though, is that Abram is now 85 years old. It's been 10 years since God called him and made these promises to him, and yet Abram still has no children. At this point in the narrative, then, Abram is living in Canaan. He's been living there for 10 years. He's been blessed with wealth. He's been blessed with prestige, but he's still childless. And that is the setting for Genesis chapter 16. So Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So verse 1 introduces us to three of the main characters in this chapter. We have Abram, we have Sarai, and we have Hagar. We're told that Abram and Sarai are still childless, but we also learn for the first time of one of Sarai's servants named Hagar. Now, if you remember from the second half of Genesis chapter 12, when we were there earlier in the fall, Abram panics when a famine hits the land. He takes matters into his own hands and he retreats into Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he lies to Pharaoh. He, uh, things get really messy, but somehow he ends up leaving Egypt with a whole lot of wealth and a bunch of servants. Well, one of the servants he acquired that he, while he was there that um, Pharaoh gave to him was an Egyptian uh, servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. So the three characters in this story so far, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, each of them will try to take God's plans into their own hands, and it results in a complete mess. So first, we see Sarai's sin of impatience. Look at the first part of verse 2. Genesis 16, first part of verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai is now 75 years old. Uh, Herself, she's reached a point of utter frustration. She's at least 20 years past the point of conceiving a child, and the shame she felt continued to grow and grow. She desperately wanted to give Abram a child, but the years passed, and as the years passed, the more she saw herself as the reason why the promise hadn't yet come true. Add to this the fact that the culture that she lived in at the time viewed barrenness as a a shameful tragedy. Some even believed it to be a curse from God. So Sarai's tired. She's done waiting, so she takes matters into her own hands. She encourages Abram to sleep with Hagar in hopes that uh, Hagar will bear him children. Now, this might sound strange, but it was widely accepted. Um, This was a a cultural practice of that time for a barren wife to offer a surrogate 
to her husband. And that wife would then be the one who, who serves as um, th- that child's mother. But though this was common, it was nevertheless wrong, and it's an all-around bad suggestion from Sarai. Now, if we think her suggestion is strange, then Abram's response, or lack thereof, should really shock us. Okay, because now we see Abram's sin of passivity. The second part of verse 2 going into verse 3 says this, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. What is going on here? The man who trusted God's promise when he chased the four kings of the east 120 miles with only a small band of soldiers and gave those armies a whooping, this this same man is now passively going along with these uh, impatient and, and sinful plans of his wife. Now, maybe he too started accepting the marriage practices of his day as normal. Or, or maybe Hagar was a young, attractive Egyptian, and he viewed this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Or maybe he and, and Sarai had reasoned together that God did, after all, make the promise that Abram would have a son. And after all, he didn't specifically say the son would be Sarai's. Now, however, they each tried justifying it, though, it was completely wrong. Abram was breaking the covenant he made with his wife. He was doubting the faithfulness of God. He was failing to test his wife's counsel against God's word, and he clearly is not seeking God in any of this. He remains frustratingly passive in all of this. And then we see Hagar's sin of pride, starting in verse 4. And he, Abram, went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Abram heeded his wife's proposal and slept with Hagar. See, Hagar is able to do for Abram what Sarai could not do for her own husband. She gets pregnant. And what happens when Hagar realizes She's pregnant? Well, we're told here that Sarai looked with contempt on, or that Hagar looked with contempt on Sarai, her mistress. See, Hagar's ability to get pregnant with the patriarch's child, it started to stir up some sinful pride in Hagar's heart. She starts thinking more highly of herself, and she starts thinking less of Sarai, to the point that she begins to hate Sarai. Whatever peace, whatever unity existed in their home up to this point was now gone. And this first biblical love triangle gets even more complicated. Verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So apparently it's not too long before Hagar's haughty looks and her Sneering grins cause Sarai to lose it. She erupts with, with jealousy and anger. She goes into to full beast mode and, and she starts blaming everything on Abram. Though she was the one to give Abram the idea and though she gave him the green light to act on her idea, she's seeing red now. And though it may not be fair to put all the blame on Abram, in many ways she's right. See, Abram is the head of the home. God had spoken directly to him. He should have never 
allowed the situation to begin with. So what's his response here then to his wife's fury? Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So here goes passive Abram yet again, abdicating his responsibilities as a spiritual leader. He fails to recognize the part that he played in all of this, and he he fails to protect Hagar, so he acts like a coward, and he gives permission for his wife, Sarai, to treat Hagar however she pleases. And that's exactly what Sarai does. She begins to treat Hagar as nothing more than a slave to be abused. Add to this the fact that both Abraham, uh, both Abram and, and Sarai refused to, to even call Hagar by name, but they simply refer to her as Sarai's servant. And you can imagine how Hagar must be feeling about all this underneath her, her tough, proud exterior, which is why she gets fed up with the whole situation, and we're told that Hagar flees from the family. What a mess this entire situation has turned into. It all started because people who were called by God to walk by faith began doubting God's word and began doubting his timing. Their doubt and their distrust then led them to the conclusion that they somehow needed to help God uh, with his plan. And their attempt at at helping God turns into a total disaster. Trying to take God's plans into our own hands always makes a mess. Now, as much of a mess that Abram, Sarai, and Hagar made, the truth is we've all made messes of situations that we refused to trust God with. So from the examples of the three people in this account, we have three cautionary principles we need to be reminded of when we're tempted to take God's plans into our own hands. The first one is this. From Sarai's example, we learn that impatience can cause us to try to take control of God's plans. Impatience. Because of of Sarai's impatience, she got herself to the point of utter despair and frustration. She's been waiting 10 years for something to happen, but there was still no child in the picture. She's tired of waiting for God. She's tired of waiting for him to intervene supernaturally. So she settles for an entirely natural but sinful solution. Now, before we're too hard on Sarai... When's the last time you had to wait 10 years for something? In today's day and age, 10 years might as well be a lifetime. We hate waiting. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who floors it when I see a yellow light because I don't want to wait patiently at the red light. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who loses my cool when I'm stuck behind a slow driver in the left lane. We hate waiting. And now we're figuring out ways to to wait even less. We have Instacart and Instagram because we want things instantly and because we seek instant gratification. There are more and more retailers jumping into same-day delivery service because apparently Amazon Prime's two-day delivery service is two days too long. There are smartphone apps that have eliminated the need to wait for uh, a cab, for a date, for tables at a restaurant. We hate waiting, and we're becoming less and less patient. So that means we especially need to be careful that we don't bring these kinds of impatient expectations into our lives of faith. As followers of Christ, being transformed into Christ's image, patience 
is necessary. We grow by persistently praying. We grow by consistently trusting God, by habitually studying his word, by continuously worshiping and fellowshipping with each other. Right? We can't be like school kids who want to look up the answer to their math problems in the back of the book because they don't want to do the work to solve the problem. When it comes to our spiritual development, we need to remember that shortcuts always lead away from growth, never toward it. I guess you could say it this way. There are no shortcuts in our sanctification. None. See, the the version of the gospel that you see so often on um, social media or or from the TV preachers, the, the version of the gospel that teaches that if you claim something in the name of Jesus, if you speak your desire for successful relationships, if you visualize good health and lots of wealth, these things will be yours, right? That version of the gospel is nothing but pure grade A garbage, There are no secret Christian techniques. There are no weird methods of of biblical numerology, no hidden secrets that will turn your spiritual spiritual wishes into reality. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. Jesus doesn't come into our lives to give us special techniques to help make our lives better or faster. He works in us and through us, transforming us over the course of our lifetimes for his glory. So don't look for the shortcut. Don't look for the spiritual quick fix. Instead, seek God and wait on him to respond. His will must be realized his way, and his way always means waiting for his perfect timing. So from Sarai's example, we learn that impatience can cause us to try to take control of God's plans. And and here we also learn from Abram that passivity can cause us to try to take control of God's plan. Passivity. It's sad to see in this example how how apathetic and passive Abram Abram has been in this whole debacle. The compliant way that he took Hagar as a second wife, the way he refused to fight for what he knew was right, the offensive way he allowed Hagar to be treated. He is the one who heard the voice of God. He's the one who, who led the family to follow God. He's the mighty warrior who, who humiliated four pagan armies in one round. But now it's like he just threw in the towel. He seems more like a pushover here than a patriarch. So may this serve as a reminder to each one of us of the dangers of being spiritually passive in an aggressively dark world. See, there's never been a more opportune time to be a a lazy and passive saint. With so many disruptions in our church attendance routines, even like today, and with an increase in the amount of things that that we can do remotely in isolation, so many Christians have developed a, a lack of concern for the things of God and a lack of care for their own souls. But church... It's more important than ever to be spiritually alert and active. And men, especially, listen up. It's time we stop hitting snooze on God's alarm. God has called each one of you to model and to teach the values and behaviors of godliness to those around you. So men, step up and lead. 
Speak out the truth in love. Stand strong when you're challenged or when you're criticized. Stay humble by remaining teachable and by lifting those up around you. And serve King Jesus by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, doing everything you do for his glory and his glory alone. That's your calling as a man. And for all of us, let's not start this new year off from a position of spiritual laziness. See, if this past year your study of the Bible has become an afterthought, if you've been caring more maybe about your physical appearance and the beauty of your own soul, if your thoughts have been centered on the things of of the world and not on things of God and his word, if you haven't been waking up with excitement on Sunday mornings, start this new year off from a place of repentance and surrender asking Jesus to do for you everything that he promises to do and and to be for you all that he is. Seek him and be available to him in the midst of seeking him. Show up to church next week even if you're tired. Open the Bible even when you don't feel like it. Pray even when it's hard. Talk to people more about Jesus than about your politics. From Sarai's example, we learn that impatience can cause us to try to take control of God's plan. From Abram, we learn that passivity can cause us to try to take control of God's plan. And from Hagar's example, we learn, third, that pride can cause us to try to take control of God's plan. See, Hagar didn't hesitate at the opportunity to finally be somebody, to finally be something more than a servant. She agreed to the plan, and Hagar finally had something to lord over Sarai. She gets pregnant and puffed up, and in her pride, she shoves it all in Sarai's face. But because she didn't wait on God to lift her up and instead lifted herself up, things kept getting worse. And that's exactly what happens to us when we get disgruntled with God and in our pride do things our own way for our own benefit. It's kind of like a blowfish. Blowfish can can inflate to to the the shape of a ball in order to avoid predators. They fill up uh, their elastic stomachs with with a bunch of water and they expand to several times their normal size. And these blowfish contain a toxin that makes them deadly to other fish and, and poisonous to humans. Well, just like that, just like blowfish, we often puff ourselves up with with pride to make ourselves look bigger or better than we really are. But this pride becomes a toxin. It poisons marriages. It poisons friendships. It poisons even entire churches. The only remedy to our pride is the humility of Christ, allowing him to be everything for us, to work through us, and waiting on him to lift us up in due time. So when your pride tempts you to puff yourself up or to fight for recognition, remember that you've been called to walk by faith. And if you're walking by faith, the approval and recognition of other people won't matter. So lack of patience, passivity, and pride. Three sins that cause us to shift our dependence off of God and to put it entirely on ourselves. And I think it's obvious that at this point when we do that, it gets ugly. Whenever we try to take God's plans into our own hands, it always makes a mess. Now, maybe you've made a mess of things this past year. Maybe you've brought pain to your spouse or hurt 
to your children. Maybe you've made some, some really bad choices and the consequences of those choices are just starting to unravel. Or may, maybe you look back at this time uh, last year and you're so frustrated. You're frustrated because you were so determined to be in a better place by the beginning of 2022, but things actually look worse. In some way, shape, or form, you spent last year taking control instead of trusting God. And now you're wondering to yourself, do I really have any hope for the new year? Or have I made such a, a royal mess of things that they're beyond the point of repair? Well, if we stopped at this point in Genesis, in Genesis 16, things look beyond the point of repair for Sarai and Abram and, and Hagar. But Genesis 16 doesn't end there because the next section of the chapter introduces a fourth character into the narrative, the hero of the story, the one who shows us that nothing is beyond repair. So let's look briefly at the rest of chapter 16, starting in verse 7. So we left off with the jealous Sarai abusing her authority by being cruel and harsh with pregnant Hagar, and Hagar decides to flee from the camp. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So Hagar decides she's going to escape from Abram and Sarai in their camp. She's going to go back to her homeland of Egypt. And as she nears the desert that borders Egypt, she stops at this spring. And there, pregnant and alone, Hagar gets surprised by a stranger, identified to us here as the angel of the Lord. The first time in scripture we see such a title for someone. Verses 8 and 9. And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So this male stranger finds Hagar by an isolated spring near the border of Egypt and he speaks to her with such authority. He calls her by name, he asks about her, her comings and her goings, and then he commands her to return to Sarai and to submit to her. Now who could ask her to do such a thing? Who does this stranger think he is? God? Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So now Hagar is really listening. All right, this stranger makes a promise to Hagar that she's going to have a multitude of descendants. And then he goes on and he gives her an oracle informing her of details that only God himself would know. Verses 11 and 12. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his, kin, his kinsmen. So the angel of the Lord informs Hagar of the gender and the name of the baby, and then he, he tells her also of the character and the future of the child. Now, interestingly enough, the boy's name is Ishmael. Ishmael literally means God has heard. And at this point, Hagar knows exactly who this stranger is that's been speaking with her the whole time. It's God himself. Look at verses 13 and 14. 
So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lachai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So see, Hagar doesn't focus on all the details about the child she'd give birth to. Instead, now her focus shifts off of her messy situation and onto God. See, it's likely here that the angel of the Lord in this passage is what we would call a Christophany. A Christophany means a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. So, so a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Hagar comes face to face with, with pre-incarnate God and worships him. She celebrates him by giving him the title of the God who sees me. And then she commemorates this occasion when he stepped into her mess and showed her mercy by renaming the, the spring there. She renamed it to Beher Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. So God reveals himself as the angel of the Lord for the very first time, not in connection with Abram, not in connection with any of the patriarchs or with any of the heirs of God's promise, but to a proud, fearful, frustrated female Egyptian servant. She recognized the voice of God. She received it, and she was transformed by it. She no longer takes pride in her pregnancy, but now she takes pride in her God, and she obeys him. She goes back to Sarai, trusting that God knows better than her and that he'll continue to, to protect her and care for her. And then verses 15 and 16 says, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So there you have it. Three people all contributing to a terribly messy situation. A situation inflamed by jealousy, by anger, by pride, by self-reliance, by apathy. A situation that seemed entirely lost and utterly hopeless. A situation that proves that trying to take God's plans into our own hands always makes a mess. But God... God enters the scene full of grace and mercy. He keeps his promise to Abram and Sarai, and he honors Hagar. See, in the midst of their mess, God showed them amazing mercy. So if there's anything that I want us to take away from this passage this morning, it's that same thing. In the midst of our messes, God shows amazing mercy. In the midst of our messes, God shows amazing mercy. So, so whatever baggage you have from this past year, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever messes you've created, know that you have not gone beyond the borders of God's mercy. You never did, and you never can. The kindness and mercy of God, it transformed proud Hagar into praying Hagar. The kindness and mercy of God will continue to transform impatient Sarai into immovable Sarah. And the kindness and mercy and, and patience of God will go on to also transform the, the faithless uh, pushover Abram into the faithful patriarch Abraham. So you had better believe that God can take your mess 
and redeem it by his mercy. Let this be the day that you give up all your attempts at trying to shortcut God, all your attempts to do God's work your way, in your own strength, according to your own wisdom. Instead, know that God sees you. Know that he's faithful and always hears your cries for mercy. There might be consequences for the mess you made. I mean, there were long-lasting consequences for the mess made by Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. The tension that exists between the Jews and the Arabs to this day all started 4,000 years ago as a result of this shortcut. But even in the mess, even in the midst of the mess, God is present, God is powerful, he is the God who sees you. The God who sees you, he sees your sinful past, and he still pursues you with his grace and with his mercy. He sees your your messy marriage. He sees your rocky relationships. He sees your extreme exhaustion. He sees where you are right now. He sees the very messes that you're trying to clean up. He sees how you fear for your finances, how you worry about your work, how you're so concerned for your children. He sees all of your troubles, all of your burdens, all of your grief. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he cares for you, he's with you, and he's calling on you to return to him and to submit to him, to return to his loving embrace and to submit to doing his will, his way, in his timing. In the midst of our messes, God shows amazing mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing mercy. God, I pray that this morning uh, each one of us would resolve to start the year 2022 by returning to you and by submitting all of our plans for this next year to you by submitting um, all of our ways to your way. Lord, by submitting um, all of the timing we prefer to your divine, perfect timing. Lord, we thank you for being such a merciful and gracious God. Lord, for giving us so many incredible things we don't deserve and also for withholding um, judgment that belongs to us and consequences that would be the natural result of our messes, Lord. God, we praise you for all of that. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you that your mercies are new every single morning. Lord, we return to you, we submit to you this very morning. Lord Jesus, have your way with us this year. Work in us, work through us. Be glorified through each of our lives and through this church and through all of our churches in the area. Be glorified this year. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.